We're in John chapter 1. We'll look at verse 15 through 18. Last week we looked at just one verse. And I should do some sort of explanation before we get started. Some of you have wondered about some things I may say. Uh, the question comes forth is this, why do theologians use such difficult terminology? I mean, why all these Hebrew and Greek terms? And, and now even it's in your sermon title, the exegesis of God. What does that even mean? Well, let me answer that in two ways. First off, it's important to note, we are all theologians. We're all theologians. Theology is nothing more than, nothing less than the science of the study of God. John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is just something that we all do. I just get paid for it, so sorry. But uh, we're all theologians. Uh, number two, I'd answer it this way. Terminology, especially some of these bigger words or different language um, words, terminology helps us to be exact. You see, it's important for us to be exact and use exact terminology because we serve an exact God. Um, he's not a God of confusion. I'm not saying we understand all aspects, but we want to get as close to the scriptures as we can in explanation. Uh, to give you an example, to see how exact he is, if I were to say the words 93 million some of you students know what I was referring to? That's the number of miles from the earth to the sun, from the sun to the earth. Supposedly, if we were closer, we'd burn up. If we were further away, we'd freeze to death. We should praise the Lord. He's an exact sort of God. And by the way, lest you think you're not an exact sort of person, don't you seek that sort of exactness when you go to your medical doctor? I mean, think about it for a moment. If you find out you have something wrong in your body, do you really want the doctor to be, oh, cavalier, inexact in his diagnosis? Would you want him to look down at you after he's done all the medical uh, exam and says, well, I don't, I don't rightly know, but I reckon your problem is this. You've got a, you've got a doohickey on your thingamajig. <laughs> and I'm gonna have old... Uh, so-and-so, take this whatchamacallit and, and cut all the way down from here to down yonder. <laughs> I surely hope you'll be back to snuff anywhere from a few weeks to a few years. No, 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 no. Trust me, you like it. You like it when a medical doctor is exact, even using big words as long as he can explain it. It makes you think he really knows what he's doing when it comes to working on your body. Well, I would say in the same way, in theology, we use difficult terms at times, not to be impressive, but to provide exactness to our language. Because like medical doctors, since we're all theologians, we serve the body, do we not? And we want to be exact, and we serve an exact God. So just to refresh some of the things we've talked about, we use the word, the Greek word logos in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And I was trying to make a point that logos, as one of the commentators states, is deity expressing itself in audible terms. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus Christ, the son, makes him known to us. He is the word 
the expression of God. And then we've got that word dualism. Well, that was not a good thing. I tried to explain it, spirit good, body bad. And there's some people that believe this, even some Christians that are falling into dualism. It's a wrong way of thinking. Somehow thinking the spirit is good, but the body is, is worthless. It's just meant to be thrown into the ground one day. No, no, no. God made them good, not just good, but very good from the beginning. And he will one day put them back together again. Uh, you've also got hypostatic union. Hypostasis is the Greek word. It's meaning person or being. It's when God became man. So full deity, full manhood, one person. Don't you dare say he's 50% God, 50% man. That is a complete heresy. Why do I say that? Because he had to be like us in every way except for without sin. Today, we're gonna look at the incarnation. If you're looking for perhaps the best word to describe Christmas. Well, if you were to wa watch certain movies these days, you might think, I don't know, Santa or snow or holly. No, for a believer, the one word that best describes Christmas is probably the term incarnation. Incarnation from the Latin caro meaning flesh. This is where God took on flesh, divine becomes human without losing any divinity whatsoever. The creator of man becomes a man. God, took the, uh, God the son took up residence in the womb of a young maiden, Mary. Nine months later, she birthed not just a baby boy, but the son of God. So what you have is interesting. In John 1.14, John's gonna really focus on deity. Luke is gonna focus on humanity. So in John 1, 1 in verse 14, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth, deity. In Luke 2, 7, we have a picture of more a focus on humanity. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I was listening to Alistair Begg this past week, and I thought he had a really good point. Uh, he often does. He says, as Jesus was wrapped in a swaddling cloth at birth, so he was wrapped in a linen shroud at death. As he was put into a cave or tomb at death, so he was born in a cave at birth. Now, just to be clear, it says nowhere in the text that he was born in a cave but oftentimes in Israel, they would have, that's where they would keep the animals, in a cave. And there's caves all throughout Israel. And by, according to church tradition, that's probably the case. Why so specific, wrapped in cloths, wrapped in a shroud, put in a cave? The Bible is crying out, screaming out to you, this one is human. He is human and not just deity. And I think believers, we sometimes miss that. We like to compartmentalize. Jesus asleep in the boat, human. Jesus rise from the dead, uh, deity. No, they're both together, compacted at the same time. So we got a fight on our hands in the fourth century. And I'm giving you a long introduction as we get into the text because I think this is vitally important. A fight is brewing in the fourth century between two men named Nestorius versus Cyril. Nestorius was bishop of Constantinople, and he tried to answer a very difficult question. Some of you may have wondered before, 
Question is this, how can Jesus Christ, born of Mary, being 100% man, not be partly a sinner, since man is by definition a sinner since the fall in the Garden of Eden? It's a good question. Well, I'll give you perhaps the reason. Why won't you give us the reason? Because the Bible makes it clear Jesus was without sin, but it doesn't tell you all the details. I think theologically you could make a, make a strong point of saying this, Jesus certainly is not Joseph's son by blood. That's clear in the text. Uh, and we see, it seems, that the sin nature passes to us, parent to child, by the father. Why do you say that? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, although Eve sinned first in the garden, ladies, <laughs> the world entered sin because of Adam. The Bible's very clear on this. Romans 5, 12, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Cain and Abel were developed or not developed, inherited a sin nature because of Adam. So I would tell you Nestorius' real problem is this. Nestorius is ashamed of the incarnation. He's ashamed of it. A full union between God and man is just too strange, especially for somebody that perhaps deals with dualism. It's spirit and body, spirit good, body bad. No, 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 he can't have it. It bothers him. And so he sought ultimately to restrict Mary's role to being only the mother of Jesus Christ's humanity. Mary should be called in the Greek Christotikos, Christotikos, which means the one who bears Christ or the one who gives birth to Christ. And you go, well, that sounds pretty good, but there's a problem with that. You see, from the third century on, Mary was never called Christotikos. She was always called Theotokos, God-bearer, or one who gives birth to God. And let me, let me nuance that here in just a moment. Uh, Cyril, that's Nestorius on this side. Cyril, on the other side, was Bishop of Alexandria. And he said, Nestorius, you are splitting Jesus Christ into two distinct persons, the human, son of Mary, and the divine, son of God, thus destroying the perfect union of the divine and human natures of Christ. And not only that, but this sabotages the fullness of incarnation and salvation. So Cyril went to Nestorius and he, he hollered out again and again, Theotokos, Theotokos, Theotokos. And Nestorius couldn't hear it, didn't like that. And once again, just to be very clear, uh, Theotokos... Uh, perhaps a less literal translation of Theotokos is Mary, uh, not just uh, mother of Christ, mother of God. And now you go, hmm, I'm not comfortable with that language. Well, I'm not either. Because in some circles, this title gives divine favors to Mary. Uh, that Mary was yet, uh, oh, she was the mediatrix between God and Jesus. That is false. That is completely without scriptural text. We need to be clear. Mary was highly blessed, incredibly blessed, but it was by grace alone. Mary is just another sinful, fallen human being like us. But Mary could actually be called the mother of God, and that would be accurate if that title is referring not to Jesus' eternity past, but to his incarnation. Let me prove that out to you. Did Mary give birth to Jesus? Yes or no? Some of y'all are like, I don't know now. Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> is Jesus God? 
Yeah. Um, of course, at the incarnation, but was he still God at age 12 when he is sort of questioning and answering the scribes at the temple? Yes. How about when he dies on the cross? Yes. And he looks down and John and Mary said, behold your son, behold your mother. So if you were to go up to Jesus, we could take you on a time machine back to the first century. We could meet Jesus, this young boy or a young man, and they would, we would ask, who's your mother? And he goes right here, Mary. Now I'm starting to hurt your head. Good. Because it should blow your mind. It should blow your mind. Once again, no divine favors whatsoever to Mary. And no, she's not going to be, I don't think, sitting next to Jesus Christ, his mother. This is not, no, no, no. She's a, she's a human fallen being like us. But AD 40, 431, the Council of Ephesus actually confirmed Mary should be referred to as Theotokos because her son, Jesus Christ, really is God. And you have two natures going on in one person, both God and man. So now I have to ask you this question before we go into the text. Are you ashamed of the incarnation? Are you ashamed of it? What I mean by that, are you comfortable? I mean, when we look at this, does this bother you? There's some sense that it should be bothering to us, but there's another sense that we should embrace it by faith. God took on mortal human flesh. He became subject to all things. Every person is subject to not sin. Jesus was born. He got tired, according to the text. Hungry, he cried, he sweat, he bled, he died. Now, it doesn't say this in the text, but we know that Jesus had to become like us in every way except for without sin. So that means he actually coughed, he sneezed, he had headaches, he got sick. Like us, he laughed, he ran, he swam. I'm sure, he had his favorite foods. As a baby, since we're studying the incarnation, like all babies, he had to be fed, cleaned up, learned to speak, learned to walk. Oh, please tell me you don't think he came out of the womb saying, Mary, Joseph. He had to learn this. He was like us in every way. Silent night, I said some nice things about it the other night, but I'll have to push back on this one. There's a phrase, and you, perhaps you know it, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus... No crying he makes. No crying. And now I don't, just to be clear, I don't know if he's making a theological point here. It would be a wrong one in some sense because maybe in their view he wasn't crying, but he is a baby. Of course he cried. He's God and he's human, though without sin. So we would put it this way as we dive into verse 15. At the very moment when the Son of God was sent into the world, into the womb of a virgin, as he began to develop arms and legs in her body, as he was kicking in Mary's womb, as the Son of God was being born and wrapped tightly in rags and lying down in a cattle trough, the Son of God was still at that very same moment holding the universe together at all times. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What's happening here, 
Verse 14, it's speaking incarnation. And then verse 15 jumps, fast forwards to Christ's baptism. And it's that John is crying out. In the Greek, it's kratzo. Kratzo is an onomatopoeia. You say, what's that? You should know that word. Onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like the noise it makes. Here's a good one. Boom. I heard a loud boom. That's the sound that the, that the whatever just made. And that's an onomatopoeia. We don't use the word kratzo. We use the word caw. What animal caws? It's a crow or it's a raven. And that's this picture is John is crying out. It's this, it's this Greek word meaning cry out or to shriek. John is crying out these phrases with deep emotion. Why is he being so emotional about it? Because he's got a job. He's the one who prepares for the way of the Messiah. We're going to be studying that here in the coming weeks. And so he's not going to just kind of say it off to the side. He's loud and out in the desert and looking like Elijah. And people are coming. And he is preparing for the way of the Messiah. And he says, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What's that phrase about? Well, in the ancients, older chronological age always equaled superiority. Now, God, not surprisingly, doesn't do that often. Isaac is the younger brother. Jacob is the younger brother. And many times the Lord switches those uh, in prominence. But if the ancients, that was superiority. That's not the case here. We see that John the Baptist was, was older. It seems to be six months older than Jesus he should have more honor, but not when his younger cousin Jesus is eternal. He gets precedence. So, and not, not only that, but he's also God as well. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now it's not, I don't think it's referring to John the Baptist speaking, but rather John through the inspiration of the spirit is writing this out. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It's hard to know what to use that phrase, grace upon grace. It's hard to know what it's defined because that, just to give you one more, I'm sorry, Greek word is anti, and it means uh, grace, anti, grace. Uh, anti could mean oppose or opposite or in place of. I know you're familiar with that term. I know you are because I bet you've heard of the anti-Christ before. He's the one who opposes Jesus and his people. He's the one who is the opposite of Christ. And he is also the one in place of. And the Jews, for the first time, think they've actually met their Messiah, only to find out it is the anti-Christ. Here, that word anti, uh, it could mean uh, grace. I'll give you two options. It could mean grace in place of grace. Remember, uh, John is juxtaposing the old covenant, Mosaic covenant, with a new covenant in Jesus Christ. So he could be saying this, as compared to the grace in the old covenant of Moses, Jesus offers a better grace, a fuller grace in the new covenant. Question, was there grace in the Old Testament? Oh yes. Lamentation 3.23, his compassions, they never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So of course there was grace in the Old Testament. And yet the grace of the New Testament is so much more. Uh, John 29, John the Baptist cries out and says, um, behold, the Lamb of God who 
takes away the sin of the world. If you're an Old Testament Jew, you look at that and you go, John, you're crazy. No one takes away the sin of the world. What we do is we cover the sin with the blood of the lamb. And for the first time you hear, no, there's somebody here that will actually take your sin away as far as the East is from the West. So maybe what he's saying is that the grace of Jesus Christ is better than the grace of Moses. And that'll preach. It could also mean this. He could be saying grace upon grace, the way the English Standard Version translates it. And that is this, from Christ in his fullness, we have received grace like an ever-flowing oh, ocean crashing upon the beach, one wave after the other, one wave after the other. It's inexhaustible. And, and so that might be what he's saying, is that, is that only as we embrace the fact that Jesus died for my sins on the cross, and there's the fullness of God right there, and there's no hope apart from this. One of the commentators states it like this, it is ill vain for us to seek a single drop of happiness apart from him because God has determined that whatever is good shall reside in him alone. Accordingly, we shall find angels and men to be dry, heaven to be empty, the earth to be unproductive, and in short, all things to be of no value if we wish to be partakers of the gifts of God in any other way than through Christ. What that commentator is saying is the same thing that George Mueller of the 19th century would say. George Mueller would uh, have a high lot of, lot of respect for him. He's a 19th century German founder of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. What he wanted to do is he just wanted to prove to the world that God is faithful. So he would never ask for funds. He never did. He just trusted that God would bring them in, which is pretty hard to do when you're running an orphanage. And yet, fact is, is God did take care of him and provided for him. A lot of people don't know this if you've studied his life. George Mueller didn't want to be in, he, he, his drive in life was not to be running an orphanage. Actually, he had no real passion for that. But he did it because he wanted to prove to the entire world that God is faithful. And so his, his role in the mornings was trying to make himself as happy as he could in Christ. Listen to what he says. The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. Now, some people would say, well, that sounds like narcissism. It is narcissism if he's trying to find his happiness in anything other than Christ. But if he's seeking first thing to find himself happy in the Lord, that's right and that's good. And we can learn from him. So what does it mean? Does it mean... Grace in place of grace, Christ's grace is better than the Old Testament. That's certainly true. Or does it mean grace upon grace, meaning it's inexhaustible? And for the believer, it's only found in Christ. I think both are right. Hold it to either one. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As I mentioned from verse 14 last week, grace and truth is just a way of life for the Lord and the God we serve. Even in the beginning, when our first parents rebelled against their maker, what truth did he give them? Don't you eat of this tree. And then once they did eat of the tree, they got to hear a little bit more truth. What he had told them before, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And what does he do? Here's the truth of it. You're leaving this garden and you will never come back again. There's the truth. 
Was there grace in that? Oh yeah, the Bible makes it very clear if they had gone to eat of the tree of life, they would have lived forever in a fallen state. But not only that, there was grace upon grace. He made them animal skins and put off the day of their physical death for it seems hundreds of years. So here in verse 17, what happens is the text is taking this concept of grace and truth and he's comparing the law of Moses to Jesus Christ. And you know what he finds out? There's no comparison. The law is good, the Bible says, but nothing in comparison to Jesus Christ. Finally, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, just to be clear, God is invisible, but that doesn't make him unreal. And some of you might say, well, wait a second. Haven't many people seen God in visions, theophanies, anthropomorphic representations? We, we would say yes, but really this verse refers to God's unveiled essence. And if you were to see it, it would be like standing face to face with the sun. You would be eviscerated. You'd be destroyed. You couldn't do it. And so, and remember, we see Moses wants to see God. He says, show me your glory. And God says, verse, 30, uh, verse 20 of chapter 33 in Exodus, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. It's almost like he looks at Moses and says, this is nothing personal, but if you see it, you'll die. And we see in Exodus 34, God put Moses in a cleft of the rock and he passed before him, so he saw his back. And yet, Moses knew at that point, it's never gonna happen. So how does God get for people to see him? He comes in the flesh. And that's what he does. Notice verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. In the, it, it's not at the Father's side. The Greek is more exact. He is in the bosom of the Father. Um, he is basically right here with the Father. And it really connotes intimate fellowship. This is the way, as one of the commentators states, this is the way Jewish fathers would sit their sons on their lap and teach them the law of God. I didn't have a son, I have a daughter. So that's what I would do. Put her right in my lap and we would just start teaching, start teaching the scriptures. And this is what, this is intimate fellowship. And that's what you have here, the son and the father. Now, just to be clear, the father is not teaching the son because the son already knows it. He's omniscient. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, one essence. Let's not mess that. But I think the text is trying to show us is that they have intimate relationship. And not only does the Godhead have intimate relationship with each other, they have intimate relationship with us too. And you should re realize this. When John is writing this in the first century, Greek and Roman thought God was far away, completely removed from man. He, he really wants nothing to do with them except maybe to mess around with them from time to time, mess with their minds, change things, but they're completely removed. But that's not the God that we serve. We serve a God in Romans 8.15, whereby we can call him Abba, Father, or as it could be translated, Daddy, or, or perhaps Dad. We know a God in Psalm 68.19 who daily bears our burdens, moment by moment. Hebrews 13, he tells us, verse five and six, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is the kind of God we serve. 
And this is the kind of God, it says, that he has made him known. The name of this text, I think you caught it, right? The exegesis of God. Here's our word. Exegesato. And it's where we get our word exegesis. Now some of you are starting to go to sleep. Don't do it. Exegesis in the Greek, it means to lead out, to lead out. It, we would translate it as explain. And what's going on is somebody's taking the text and they're taking out the text and they're letting it explain itself. Exegesis is a beautiful thing. What's the opposite of exegesis? Some of you went through the teaching course. Eisegesis. Eisegesis doesn't mean to lead out. It means to lead into Sadly, some of you perhaps grew up in a church where the teacher read a passage and then he closed the text and then he began to teach. That is eisegesis. Um, it, it did damage to your Christian life. I know it did. It hurt. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that here at Grace, we get everything right, that we are somehow infallible. That's, that's not the case. But we really do try to let the text speak for itself. And we see here the Son of God has exegeted, He has explained, He has interpreted God the Father to man. I'll never forget, I was in First Baptist Dallas years ago, and we had a speaker come up front, and he would talk about how much he didn't like the God of the Old Testament. But then when he read the New Testament, oh, he was really drawn to Him. Yeah, that's bad heresy. That's really bad. I mean, not saying that some heresy is good, but that's especially putrid. No, Jesus Christ is the same God, same essence as the God, God the Father and God the Spirit. And Jesus, in his kindness, he explained God to us. He is the exegesis of God and the only one who can explain God to us. Why? Because he's God. So I love Ray, Ray Comfort. He's an evangelist and he brings up this point. Some of you might be thinking, maybe there are unbelievers today. You might think, you know, Jesus can't be the only way. I mean, my God wouldn't hold my sin against me. My God would forgive me. My God would not send me to hell. And Ray Comfort makes me laugh. And he says this, that's true. Your God would not send you to hell. Your God does not exist. He is of your own imagination as you break the second commandment, which is making a God in your own image. As we conclude, Mary was a woman highly favored by God. It was grace upon grace. And yet she was not the Christotokos, the one who bore Christ. She was the Theotokos, one who bore God. Let's not mistake this. And so what I would encourage you today, if you're a believer, is reflect upon that mystery let that lead you into worship. Try your best that you wouldn't constantly bifurcate God into humanity and deity. The Son of God is both. And I would say if a believer also rejoice in Christ's first advent, which is his coming, and yet be among those in 2 Timothy 4.8 that love his appearing. You're ready for him to come back, not next year, not five years, but If you're an unbeliever today, or maybe you're just unsure, my encouragement would be to come to Christ. Can I 
in just a few moments, can I clarify, help clarify the gospel uh, for you? I hope I can. Um, This past week, Courtney and I were picking up some new glasses for her, and we spoke to the technician who helped us with a final fitting. She told us about her uh, Christmas plans. She told us a lot about our Christmas plans. And I remember thinking at that moment, I had been praying that the Lord would give me opportunity to talk to somebody about Christ. And the more she talked, the more I was like, well, this woman wants to talk. And I found myself going, but I don't want to talk. And by God's grace, uh, he overcame me. And so I asked if what she was doing this weekend, if she was actually going to church. And she said, yeah. And she got, we got to hear her story. She grew up Mennonite. Uh, sadly, she'd been rejected by her family years ago. And, and now she was attending a Baptist church in DFW. I beg of you folks, do not do this. I used to do this. When I heard a person was um, same evangelical persuasion as I, I thought, oh, they're a believer. That's great. Always ask the questions. Don't believe the sign in the front of the church building. And I said, well, you know, I think the church, best thing it can do is prepare people for the next life. Uh, what does your church teach about what makes a person righteous before God? And she said something to the effect of, that's, that's a good question. I think baptism? I think if you're baptized. And I said, well, okay. I said, I can show you actually from Scripture how you can know for certain that if you are to die or when you are to die, you go to heaven. Are you interested? Sure. And so by God's grace, I was able to explain to her that we were made innocent, and yet, sadly, uh, we fell into sin. The Bible makes this very clear. Uh, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have to be perfect to get to heaven. Amen? And I'm looking at no one right now that is perfect in their actions. But God in his grace can look at you through the lens of his blood Uh, felt son who died on the cross for our sins. You see, the wages of sin is death. And I told her, I said, you're gonna die one day and go to hell. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, Romans 5, 8, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that's what Christmas is about. He was born of a virgin, lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, gave himself up to die on the cruel cross to die for the sins of the world. And three days later, rose from the dead. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I said, so baptism is a good thing. That's a public profession of your faith. But baptism won't save you. I wish I had said this as I think about it. Baptism actually would damn you if you are somehow trusting baptism for your salvation. But I did make it clear to her, actually, it's trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Jesus says in John 6, 47, he who believes has, present tense, eternal life. At this point, she kind of stopped and said, wow. So I told her, I said, listen, if you haven't come to the place of trusting Christ alone, you want to do that? You want to be at a church that is actually teaching that week in and week out and explaining the scriptures? And she said, oh, mine does. So I Okay, it's okay. We've got people here at Grace that hear the gospel week in and week out and they just haven't come to the place of trusting in Christ. So if you haven't, please come to him today. There's salvation or no one else. We believers pray that he will come today. If you're an unbeliever, 
You better pray he doesn't come today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, we praise you for the Christmas holidays where we can celebrate the gift of your son given to us. Uh, Simply, our role was just being dead in our transgressions and sins. And so we are thankful, Lord, that you would, in your kindness, send your son to die for us. I pray for anybody in here who's not yet know your son as Savior. Would you grant them salvation? Help them to believe. Pray they would repent from sin and trust Christ alone for their salvation and no one else. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.